This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today I am speaking with John Adams, Executive Director at Montana Free Press. With Adams as its founder, Montana Free Press launched in 2016 as an independent nonprofit. We needed to remind the public of the importance of a free press and that this is something that is enshrined in the First Amendment of the Constitution for a reason. John and I talk about the Montana Free Press model, the state of journalism in general, and its future here in Montana. John, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Tell us, where did you grow up and what did your parents do? Well, I grew up in a little resort community. Actually, it was kind of a blue collar um, shipbuilding community when I was a kid. It's called Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin. It's in the northeastern corner of uh, Wisconsin, the, the thumb, the peninsula that juts out into Lake Michigan. And my dad was a social studies teacher and my mom was a journalist. She was a reporter for my local hometown newspaper, The Door County Advocate. So kind of grew up with, uh, with politics and journalism in my upbringing. And was that always going to be the career pursuit, journalism? You know, not at all, really. Okay. I didn't actually take a shine to writing until college, where I'd gone to school. I wanted to be a photographer for National Geographic, but, you know, there just isn't a program at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point for uh, wildlife photography. That's sort of an ambitious sort of target job as well. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really, I mean, like a lot of uh, 18-year-old kids, I really didn't know what I wanted my future yeah. to look like. Um, but that was something that was appealing to me, something that got me out. Uh, I'm a big, you know, I'm a lover of the outdoors, mm -hmm. and I love wildlife, and I had taken a real strong interest in biology in high school. Went to my first true old-growth wilderness in uh, northern Michigan when I was a junior in high school, and that really... Um, really kind of inspired my love for the, the outdoors and open spaces. So I was looking for a career in that field. So I studied wildlife and forestry and a few other sort of outdoor oriented yep. programs, very similar to the programs here at um, University of Montana. Yeah. And then uh, I didn't do so hot in my math and science classes, but I really excelled in my writing and English classes. Um, and so that really kind of became my passion in college was the writing. And uh, I started working for the student newspaper, my junior year of college. And I think that's kind of where I started to be hooked. Uh, and my mom at the time, who was still in journalism, said, well, I, I'm totally supportive of you switching your majors and pursuing journalism. But just know that if you go into journalism, you'll never be bored, but you'll never get rich. <laughs> and I thought, well, being being not bored sounded a lot more appealing than being rich anyway. So. Yeah, uh, has that proven to be correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Anybody, I think most people who've worked in the journalism field have definitely felt the financial pinch yeah. of, the, of the field. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why I started the free press in the first place. But, but yeah, really, it just isn't boring. I mean, you get to be an expert in so many different things. Right. And you get right. to interview the most interesting people. And you get to see, you know, you get to travel to interesting places. And if you're a curious person, which I am, uh, I think it's the perfect field. Absolutely. So we'll talk about a lot of those threads over the course of this interview, but um, give us kind of brief summary of your professional experience. I mean, you've worked kind of at all levels of, of news gathering in your career. My first writing job, the first time I got paid to do anything in the publishing world was for a magazine called Potato Grower Magazine. Okay. Idaho Falls, yeah. Idaho. 
So I was living in Idaho Falls uh, looking for work. I was working in construction, uh, but really wanted to have a job in in this thing that I was passionate about, which was writing. And there was a publishing company, a trade publisher in Idaho Falls called Harris Publishing. I think they're still around. And they publish a whole variety of industry trade magazines. And they had an opening for an assistant editor of Potato Grower Magazine. And I thought, well, it's a start. It's a foot in the door. And, you know, it was actually really interesting. I found, um, you know, it doesn't sound like the most exciting or glamorous uh, writing opportunity. But I just find that if you're curious about people and sure. curious about the way the world works in general, you can find interesting things in almost any topic. And certainly, you know, an agriculture product, the size of the potato industry yeah. uh, in a state like Idaho was hugely important. And I just learned so much. And then I switched gears a little bit with that company and worked for a different division within the company. So I was the editor of uh, Skate Park Magazine, okay, which yeah. is a little bit more up my alley at the time. And that really kind of introduced me to Again, all kinds of uh, neat people. I mean, the folks who built the the skate park here in Missoula are folks that I uh, had interviewed and and met. Uh, oh, at nice trade shows Montana Pool Service and the whole story there. Well, it was it was Grindline um, and Dreamland. Um, okay, I think that worked on the original skate park. Yeah, so it was just inter- it, I just really was then fascinated by it. But then I went to um, I moved back to Wisconsin for various reasons. Uh, and got a job working at a local newspaper. Okay. And so that was really my first foray into sort of straight news journalism. Yeah. And I was a city government reporter for this small five-day-a-week afternoon daily called the Daily Jefferson County Union. Uh-huh. That's where I really started to see the connection between local news and the impact that it can have on a community. Right. You know, and, and I think local news in particular is the news that matters most to people on the day-to-day. Yeah. You know, what happens in Washington, D.C., or what happens overseas uh, is dramatic. It takes up a lot of our bandwidth. Uh, it, 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 it attracts a lot of our attention. But in terms of like how it actually impacts us on a day-to-day basis, it's it's pretty small. Not that it doesn't have impact, not that it doesn't matter, but you know, really what happens at your local school board or your local parks commission or your local city council meeting, that stuff is far more impactful to your day-to-day life and matters more, um, I think, to most people than, than what's happening on the national front, but it just do- doesn't get as much attention. And then in 2004, I moved out to Missoula, followed some friends of ours that had moved out here and okay. just looking for a change, felt a little hemmed in in Wisconsin. Yep. Uh, and the Missoula Independent was hiring. Um, and in April of 2005, I, I got my first reporting job here in Montana at the Missoula Independent, where I was a uh, sort of a general assignment reporter, but with... I. I was drawn to, and again, maybe from my background in covering local politics, I was really kind of drawn to political coverage. And of course, in 2004, 2000, well, 2005, 2006, we had a big Senate race. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, much like we do uh, this this year. And I was really interested in covering those politics, which I did for the Indy. Did that until 2007. And I was sort of recruited by the Great Falls Tribune, which at right. the time was, I would say, you know, one of the premier newspapers in the state. If if not the yeah. uh, Pulitzer Prize winning newspaper. And uh, I was recruited to cover the State House um, for the Great Falls Tribune, which was pretty intimidating, but it was a great honor and a great opportunity. Um, and as much as I wanted to stay here in Missoula and, and continue my career at the Indy, uh, I realized what a great opportunity it was to go to Helena and, and cover state politics from sort of the, the seat of power. Absolutely. And at what stage then, after you know, you, you're at the Great Falls Tribune and then at what stage did you decide to branch off and launch this new model of journalism, Montana Free Press? Well, for many years at the Trib, you know, 
I started there in 2007, and I would say for you know the first five years or so, it was great. Yeah, uh, great editors worked with great you know passionate journalists. Uh, a lot of folks who had very lengthy careers in journalism in yeah. Montana. Chuck Johnson as, as a good example. Well, well, Chuck was my sort of competitor at Lee Enterprises at the time, but, oh, okay. but Chuck had been one of my predecessors at the Great Falls Tribune. Right. So you know, obviously Chuck Johnson um, was somebody who I had always looked up to. Uh, but he was very he and and Mike Dennison and Gwen Florio uh, and and some of the other state house reporters were sort of the people that I both looked up to but also kind of wanted to compete against. Sure, yeah, and got got the opportunity to do that for many years, and it was great. Um, and then in 2013, 2014, things started changing at Gannett, the parent company that owned uh, or continues to own the Great Falls Tribune. And you just started seeing, you know, I remember the day that my editor called me up. I was on vacation back in my hometown of Sturgeon Bay visiting family. And I got the call that he basically was forced with a pretty difficult decision of either making cuts in the newsroom or taking an early buyout himself, which I think he did. And so, you know, I started seeing the more veteran journalists in the newsroom being forced to take buyouts. And I thought, well, I'm still pretty young in my career. I'm not going to have to deal with that anytime soon. But it really, you know, I, I saw where things were going. So can we take a moment to just press on this particular time? Yeah. You know, we see that, you know, the business model for Gannett is changing some of the dynamics. There's a a rise in what's happening with Facebook at that time. Like the like button had just kind of come into fruition and they're starting to monetize their audience in new ways. Google has, you know, had been aggregating news for a long time, but really starting to see intense pressure on the traditional business model in journalism. Talk a little bit more about your thoughts of, around those changes at the time. Well, yeah, and the, cha- the way those changes manifested for us in the newsroom yeah. was we went from being sort of reporters whose job it was to go out there and collect information and write stories and publish stories, print stories, to, you know, they gave us all iPhones, which we were excited about, but then we learned that we needed to use those iPhones to shoot video and have instant video published directly from the field to the website. So speed became a critical factor. I've said this over and over again. The folks in Great Falls, the publishers, the editors, the the folks who who had been in that organization for a long time were, were forced with these changes that were coming not from Great Falls, but were coming from Virginia. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was an attempt by the company, um, I think, to figure out a way to generate revenue in this atmosphere that you just described, where so much of the online advertising revenue was going to these giant companies that had the abil- ability to just the, – the sheer scale of their platform was so much bigger than what a local newspaper could possibly compete with for, for online advertising. But and they, they were scraping the content too. And, the, and they yeah. were taking the content that you all were developing and using that to monetize their audience. Yeah, and I think newspaper publishers made a mistake many, many years ago, which was when the internet came around, there wasn't a forward, there wasn't a visionary um, model for how they're going to adapt to this new tool, this new technology, this new information superhighway. And I think. The attitude was, well, we got to have a website because everybody has a website. But then what do you put on your website? Well, we produce news, so we're going to put news on our website. And so it was this attempt to sort of cut and paste what was done in print and apply it to a digital platform. And that just wasn't going to work. Especially when you're giving it away. Especially when you're giving it away. And the thing about the internet is it's not like a news, you know, you and I finish a newspaper, we leave it lay on the coffee counter and, and the next person who comes by can read the paper. With the internet, it, with a paywall, it's not really like that. You know, you need somebody's password to get in. So I understand the the challenge of, 
you know, how do we make sure that we're informing the public um, without putting it without putting up barriers that make it uh, difficult for folks of of modest or low income to yeah. also have access to that information? And you know, by 2015, I kind of saw the writing on the wall, and then um, the Great Falls Tribune went through this process, like all Gannett newspapers did at the time, which was we were essentially laid off. The entire newsroom was laid off, and we were. Um, those of us that wanted to continue working at the Trib were going to apply for new jobs, okay. which meant some of us weren't going to get jobs. So yeah. we're now competing against each other in the newsroom for those same jobs. Got to do great things for culture. Quite frankly, I thought it was insulting. My ego was such at the time that I was unwilling to go through that process. Right. And I was lucky enough that I had a partner who supported me in wanting to pursue a new endeavor. And I'm the kind of person who can live out of the back of my truck, which I did for a little while. So I kind of took the opportunity to just, I said, look, I'm not going to do this. I told my editor um, at the time that, you know, I'm sorry, but I'm not, I'm not going to take part in this process, which on the one hand opened up the opportunity for somebody else to have that position, Yeah. you know, so that's one less cut somebody was going to have to make. The free press wasn't really the thing that I was thinking about at that time. At that time, I was thinking, I'll go out and freelance. I'll try to figure out what my next move is. But I knew it wasn't going to be in you know corporate print journalism. You just didn't want to be in that space. Yeah. No, and I mean, I had other opportunities um, for other news organizations. But I, you know, when I looked at what was going on with those news organizations, I saw it's same thing. It's the same thing. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it, it it's me now, but it could be. I could be in that same position six months or a year from now. And I didn't want to always be looking over my shoulder, wondering when the next shoe is going to drop and, and I'm going to be laid off again. And I mean, you could look all over the country and it was happening everywhere. Right. There were entire blogs dedicated to this. There were Facebook groups dedicated to this um, where people were sharing stories about how they were, you know, what was happening in their newsrooms. We'll be back to my conversation with John Adams after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hey, this is Ryan Tutel and Coulter Nuanas from ESPN Missoula, and you're listening to A, a New, New Angle. Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with John Adams of Montana Free Press. And is this about the time when the New York Times pivots its business model and decides to get giant and monetize a bunch of different channels? The Washington Post is bought by Jeff Bezos around this time as well. Some bigger papers are going under. Like, Give us kind of the state of play on a broad sense. I mean, it, this has affected local news, of course, but it's also affected the information economy in, in, in many ways. Yeah, I mean, nobody was immune from it. You know, it had been happening slowly for a long time. Craigslist had, had basically eviscerated the, the, the classified market. That's a piece um, I don't think many listeners realize is like how much of the revenue model was tied to classified advertising and just in an instant that was eviscerated. Well, and that was, that was cash flow that those newspapers could count on. I mean, it was very consistent cash flow year Without year. any kind of influence it was on editorial as well exactly yeah and so with the with craigslist you saw the the print classifieds kind of disappear and right. that was a huge part of what what you know for every page of classifieds that's a page of editorial somewhere else in the paper right you know? the traditional print model whether it was at the local level or the national level they were not figuring out 
without just squeezing their subscribers, their readership, you know, if the if advertising revenue is the thing that is going to essentially subsidize news gathering, how are you going to do that? Right. And in the digital space, that was really just a sort of a, an all-out attempt to just chase CPM, clicks per thousand, right. which is the unit of measure that advertisers use to sort of gauge whether or not their advertising dollars are being used wisely. Mm-hmm. Local newspapers cannot compete with uh, CPM when it comes to platforms like Google and, and Facebook that collect so much user data that they can deliver ads directly to users that they know are the type of, of users that the advertisers are seeking to attract the attention of. Absolutely. And if you want to have a relationship with your audience as a newspaper, you can't be harvesting that kind of data from your users um, and, and expect them to trust you. Um, I don't think anybody trusts Facebook or Google or any of these giant tech platforms, but they used to trust their local newspaper where they could pick up the phone and call an editor and complain. We don't trust them, yet we willingly give them so much information about our lives. Yeah, and I, I mean, I don't think most people realize how much information right. they're harvesting. And that's you know part of the problem. And I think where we need to get, um, where the federal government needs to step in and, and help provide some transparency and regulation around mm-hmm. this this massive harvesting of, of personal data. Uh, that being said, at this time, while news traditional newspapers were struggling, there were other models that were starting to come up and, and show some real promise. Okay. And, you know, I'm looking around at places like the Texas Tribune and the Vermont Digger and, you know, nationally organizations like ProPublica and Grist. And there were these... Um, online, digital-first, nonprofit news sites that were starting to pop up all over the country, including in my home state of Wisconsin, Wisconsin Watch, that were doing really first-rate journalism and starting to build, you know, a presence. And I thought, well, why couldn't we do that in Montana? You know, Montana's a small enough state. I've been doing this long enough that I kind of know what the stories are. Mm -hmm. And I know in my heart that there is an appetite for this kind of journalism, even if it's not generating the thousands of clicks that a mugshot gallery or a you know celebrity gossip column sure or some gen- buzzfeed list or something yeah listicles and those kinds of things maybe not as many people read it but the people who read it really truly value it yeah and so i just had a sort of a field of dreams approach to if you build it they will come um and so i i set out to just start a, a news organization and worked with some close friends of mine who were collaborators of sorts okay. you know they um they were the pe- people who were sort of fanning the entrepreneurial flames that were starting to, to burn in, inside me. <laughs> and, um, and we kind of came up with an idea for this, this Montana Free Press. And once, I, once we like settled on the name Montana Free Press, I was like, that's it. That's, mm-hmm. that, that says- That feels right. Feels right because it's, you know, it's free. You know, all along, I always said that our content will always be free to the public. Okay. And that was, uh, as my friend uh, Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune likes to say, free is a business model. So I wanted it to be free for the public. But also, you know, press freedoms have been challenged uh, of late more so than any time in my lifetime. Yeah. And I felt like we needed to remind the public of the importance of a free press and that this is something that is enshrined in the First Amendment of the Constitution for a reason. It's it's a great name and a great concept. Let's draw out what the nonprofit digital first model, how does that enable you to do things that the Great Falls Tribune could not, for example? Well, 
I will tell you that one of the reasons I settled on nonprofit right out of the gate was simply because um, I had no idea how to sell advertising. Okay. And I had no desire to learn. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I really, I really liked the idea of being able to create a product and say, "Look, if you value this work, support it." It's the same model that fuels public radio. It's the same model that fuels public television. Um, there were already models for public supported media out there. Okay. And my my view was, I don't think there's anything different about doing it in the digital space as doing it in the broadcast space. People you know, sign up and, you know, call into the pledge drive uh, at Montana Public Radio every yes. year because they because they value that service. They It's something they rely on. It's something they depend on. They might not use it every day, but they're glad that it's there mm-hmm. and doing its thing. And then they support it and when they're asked to support it. And I'd always been a public radio supporter. Um, I always knew how good it felt to have that little sticker in the back of my window. Sure. And so I understood that there were people out there who cared about this stuff. And I really truly believe that if I could if I could demonstrate that we were serious about this model and that that there was uh, that this kind of journalism had a place in Montana, that we would find the money to do it. And I didn't really know where we were going to get it early on. There were some folks out there who had sort of indicated to me that if I did it, that they would co- commit some significant financial resources to it. Um, my advice would be get that in writing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We can read between the lines on how that played out. Yeah. So the first couple of years were pretty rough. It was just me. Anything and everything that was the Montana Free Press for about the first two years was basically just me. So you got a website, you're writing some stories yourself. You're maybe throwing a couple bones to reporter friends to pay them to write stories freelance if I mean, you can. Yeah, exactly. And then, uh, you know, I was using content from other nonprofit news organizations. Very early on, we joined the Institute for Nonprofit News. Okay. Which at the time, there were maybe, maybe 100, 120 organizations around the country that were members of, the, of INN. Um, and INN had some really strict rules about membership that was you had to be transparent in your sources of funding. You had to have editorial guidelines that were published and transparent on your website. Right. Um, you know, there were, there were these sort of like pra- these check boxes, and, and I liked all of those boxes. I thought okay. all of those were good practices. And my hope was that once, uh, once we got going with this, people would see it and the, and the donations would just come flying in. What I didn't realize is just how difficult it is to elevate in this atmosphere, in this digital space where it's just a complete wild west of information, so many sources of information. How do you break through? How do you get your website in front of people who've never heard of you before? A lot of that takes money and yeah, talent, money. right? And so- And Facebook. Give, yeah. And given that the donations are not flying in, like you mentioned a few moments ago, your colleague at the Texas Tribune says that free is a business model. Explain how this business model works. Early on in, in 2016, the, the main story that I had been covering for the Great Falls Tribune and a story that continued to be a major news story in Montana was this, the story of dark money. Yes. And how yes. That, the, those dark money... Political campaigns had influenced the outcomes of pr- primarily uh, Republican legislative primary races, and we should mention that the dark money line of inquiry led to some award-winning documentaries down the road, right? Yeah, and you know a lot of what we've talked about here, the the that period from 2013 to the time that I left the Trib, and then a little bit beyond that, um, I had been talking to and and working with a documentary filmmaker who is exploring a sort of similar 
uh, reporting track as I was. Okay. You know, for the local newspaper I was covering, who's behind these groups that are trying to influence the outcome of these uh, these primary elections in Montana? We don't know how much money they have. We don't know how much right. money they're spending. We don't know who's providing the money. Right. We post don't Citizens know. United. Yeah, we yeah. don't we don't know what their agenda is. You know, so this is the post Citizens United rise of of dark money in Montana and around the country. And the, this documentary filmmaker Kimberly Reed, a Helena native, was interested in what was going on in her home state, and so she was coming back to Montana, looking at kind of tracking the state's attempt to overturn Citizens United through a defense of our 100-year-old Corrupt Practices Act. And meanwhile, I was reporting on the sort of the, the on-the-ground impacts of that, that dark money in the legislative arena. Okay. And the, the, those, kind of, those tracks kind of came together in 2015 and 2016. And in 2018, the documentary film Dark Money was premiered at Sundance. And that really was the point at which, you know, the rest of the world kind of saw what I was trying to do with the Montana Free Press. Okay. And once we had that attention on my, you know, my effort to build this independent, not online, digital first investigative news yes. outlet, once people saw and heard about it for the first time, then those donations that I okay. was so, that I was so hoping would come through the door in 2016 and 2017, they finally came in in 2018 and 2019. And we finally had enough revenue that I could start hiring reporters. So by the time 2019 came around, we had two reporters covering the the 2019 legislative session, plus myself doing a, you know the lowdown podcast, and so we had essentially three journalists for one news organization that was essentially brand new, covering the Montana legislature um, top to bottom, uh, and I think that's really where people saw what the what the potential for the Montana Free Press really could be. Essentially, you were grinding away on a beat. You had your own audience that you had cultivated, and now they to get to your work, they had to access Montana Free Press. Yep. And you have this tipping point with the, the documentary. I'm assuming that maybe because it premieres at Sundance and gains kind of a national claim that this maybe attracted some national uh, benefactors or something like that. There were a handful of individual donors, people who I had never met yeah. <laughs> until the film came out, who saw the film and were inspired by what they saw uh, depicted and wanted to be helpful. They had the means to do it. Um, they were philanthropic in nature. Um, they had their own family foundations that uh, that they, they used to fund causes that they believed in, and, okay. and they believed that uh, journalism was a cause worth, worth, worth investing in. I had enough cash in 2019 to hire two reporters to cover the legislature. And we started growing our audience. Right. Um, back to your question about free as a business model. As we were producing this journalism, we were publishing it on our own website and in our own newsletter, uh, email newsletter, but we were also making it freely available to any other news organization that wanted to republish it. Okay. So if you were a local news editor in a community uh, in Polson or Augusta or Wolf Point, you had access to our journalism. And so if your local legislators were, we were covering what they were doing in the in the, the Montana legislature, they might want to run that story for their local readers. And so uh, our perspective was make it free, make it available, and make it uh, easily distributed so that Montanans, no matter where they are, can can find out what their local officials are doing once they're in Helena. Stay tuned for part two of my conversation with John Adams next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. 
and we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. Ella Hall is our production assistant. VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks made our music, and Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time. <laughs>